one. So if you come at your normal time, you're either going to be early or late. All right? So you want to come at 9 o'clock. We'll be together. And uh, it's a chance to celebrate all we do as a church. We used to call it Missions Sunday, but missions is too narrow of a term. So the missions committee renamed it. I like that. Outreach Ministries Festival. So we're going to spend time together in here, and then uh, we'll have a bunch of missionaries out there that we support with booths, and you can talk to them. We'll eat together, and children will be with us, and uh, it's going to be just a fun time, one service. So one of the things that I learned through my candidating week was that, that you like to spend time together from time to time as a whole church, and we haven't done that enough. So we thought as a staff this would be a great time to kind of throw a party and praise God for what we do as a church and the way he's blessed us. So you be prepared for that. Watch for that. You'll hear more details next week. Also, next Sunday, I will be in Kathmandu, Nepal. So I ask for your prayers. I will be teaching at Nepal Bible College. I go over once or twice a year. It's very difficult for them to get qualified people to come teach. And so uh, it's a ministry that I've had on the side and, and have thoroughly enjoyed it. Blessing the nations. I'll have about somewhere between 50 to 70 students and um, if the electricity all works out right, you'll have actually a short video showing you some of that. And um, it's fun. Most of my students there are within a year or two of, of being either Hindu or Buddhist. And now they're Christian. They've been kicked out of their castes and their families. And so they come to learn about the Bible with the express purpose of going back to their tribes, their, their castes and their family, to show them about Jesus. And so they, um, they hunger for the word. I understand that you as a church went through Romans and took quite a while. You can pray for my students because we're going to do Romans in one week. It's just the opposite of the problem that you might have felt here. They get to learn uh, six to eight hours a day for five and a half days. We'll go through the book of Romans. And uh, so pray for them. They're the ones that will have it pretty rugged during that time. But they love it. They, uh, they're very excited to spend time in God's word. So thank you for uh, sending me. Thank you for the elders for kind of releasing me, letting me do this, go on this uh, trip, and pray for me while I'm gone. It's a brutal trip. Two days over of travel, two days back, and six days in country. And, uh, and so I'll get back just in time to preach for Outreach Ministries Festival in two weeks. I don't know if what I'll say will be coherent. We'll find out. <laughs> All right, we're in a series called Waking the Dead, and we're in the book of Ephesians. So you might want to pull out your tablet or smartphone or Bible, I think there's Bible scattered all throughout underneath the seat. You can grab one if you want to follow along. We're in Ephesians 4. Today we take a turn in Ephesians. We move in a different direction than we've done all along. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we spent time um, talking about Paul's theology. His thinking about all that God was doing in creation to bring about a unified whole, to bring about a new unity that the world had not seen. Remember last week, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about breaking down the barrier, the dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles, and creating one new humanity, a, a brand new redeemed people group of which we belong, and what a surprise that was. And then last week, we talked about the mystery in Ephesians 3, and we concluded there that um, one of the functions that we have as a church is to reflect the glory of the Lord. I'll say it until I die. It's an amazing thing to me that God would choose to use us, broken people, to reflect his glory. But we are the primary way that he reflects his glory to the world around us. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Nothing ever heard of like that in the world until Jesus came along. And it was a surprise. So here's the question that we can begin to wrestle with today. Unity. 
Is it a luxury? Is it a luxury? My experience and most of the churches I've been involved in around the world is that it actually is a luxury. It's amazing the things that we get our feathers ruffled over, isn't it? Sometimes the smallest things, sometimes big things. We are easily offended as people, aren't we? Unity, is it a luxury? I don't think it is. And so as long as I'm a pastor at this church, we will continue to work on unity, and you'll find out why in just a second. It's not a luxury. It is an essential piece. If we do nothing else right, let's do unity. If I go to be with Jesus this afternoon and, and you have only five months of my, my ministry here with you to remember, I hope you remember this one thing. If we only do one thing well, let's do unity. Because if we do unity well, everything else takes care of itself. And if we don't do unity well, everything else suffers. And we don't reflect the glory of the Lord very well either. So in Ephesians 4, we begin to move in the direction now away from Paul's theology into the question of so what? What does this mean for us as DCC? What does it mean for the church universal? What does it mean for us to live life now in, in keeping with these principles of this brand new humanity bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, the people of God, to reflect his glory and his wisdom to the world around us. What does that look like? So right off the bat in chapter 4, verse 1, by the way, verses 1 through 6, I mentioned before that Paul, once he gets going, he likes these kind of run-on sentences, these cascading ideas. He can't stop them. They start coming out. Well, verses 1 through 6 is one long sentence in Greek. We just break it up to make it easy for our pastor so we can pause and take a break. All right? But that's, it's one long sentence, and this is one time where it actually makes a difference because what is clear in Greek is sometimes difficult to see in English, and this is one of those places. So the main command is in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 2 is one of the two ways that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And all that fits together. And the main idea is bear with one another in love. That's the main idea in verse 2. But you do it with humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 3 is the other way that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Be very diligent. Make every effort. Work very hard. I'm trying to give you the sense of this word here. Put a lot of energy into keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the basic command is to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And you do that by doing two things. By bearing with one another in love, with humility, gentleness, and patience, and you do it by being very careful, work very hard to preserve the unity brought about by Christ, the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then 4, 5, and 6, we'll come back to that in just a second, is actually a confessional and the basis for why this unity is possible. 
All right, so right off the bat in verse 1, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then or therefore. So that ties us right back to the benediction at the end of chapter 3. Now, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God wants to glorify himself through Dillon Community Church. That's what he wants to do. That's our role as a church. We glorify the Lord. So everything he says from here on out in the book is all focused on how do we carry out this benediction? What does it look like to bring glory to the Lord? Well, the next thing in verse 1 that I want you to pay attention to is that in my translation, it says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life, some of your translations may say, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This verb to walk in, uh, does mean to live out your life, but the verb to walk defines every single passage from here on out. There are, there are five times that this verb is used in the rest of Ephesians, so we're going to treat it in packets. So the first walk is the most important one because it gives us the overarching idea. And so why did Paul choose to use the verb to walk? Well, in the early part of this, uh, the Roman Empire, the first century I mean, everywhere they went, they walked. They didn't have many other means of transportation unless you were wealthy or you're taking a ship, but they pretty much walked. Walking is such a great verb because it's something that you do intentionally. You can, you, it's one step in front of the other. It doesn't move very fast but you're very steadily moving. And that's how they got around. And they didn't just do it alone. Everywhere they went, they walked together. They walked in groups for safety, and they walked together in uh, families and things like that. So walking was a, uh, it was a social exercise. That's what you did. That's how you got around. You walked. So when you look in chapter 4, in fact, for the rest of the book, every time you see the pronoun you, you can translate it as a plural and be confident that it's right. There's a couple of times where it's not translated that way, but the, but the context is very clear. So you as a group. So let's put that in this context. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you, Dillon Community Church, you as a church, not you as an individual, you as a church, to live a life worthy of the calling that you as a church have received. Or you could have the Texas version. I urge you all, to live a life worthy of the calling you all have received. In fact, uh, about 98% of the time in the New Testament, you can translate the pronouns as plural, and you'll hit it dead on. It'll be right. This is addressed to us as a church. Let's not forget that. And then he says, um, worthy of the calling that you have received. What's that calling? I'm going to read to you chapter 1. And I'm going to read it differently than it's in the text because I'm going to ask a question every step of the way. And I want you to answer with either God or Jesus. It doesn't make any difference to me. This is one time where the answer is Jesus, okay, or God. So listen to this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Who has blessed us? Who? Okay. With every spiritual blessing, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Who chose us? God. To be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us. Who predestined us? For adoption. Don't get tired of this, by the way. So don't get weak on me. All right? For adoption to sonship. 
uh, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Whose pleasure and will? God's. To, pr- to the praise of his glorious grace. To whose praise? Which he freely has given to us and the one he loves. Who's given us this? God. In him we have redemption through his blood. Who redeemed us? The forgiveness of sins. Who forgave us? In accordance with the riches of God's grace. Whose riches? That he lavished on us. Who lavished on us these riches? Let me hear it. Who? God. Right? With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Who revealed this mystery? Which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect until the times have reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Who created this unity? God. What did you do? Nothing. Nothing. I urge you to walk in a manner or to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. What was the price that was paid to create this unity? Is there any greater sacrifice than the death of the Son of God? There's not, is there? When you read chapter 1 the way I just read it, do you get a sense of all that God has done? And this is just a glimpse. All that he has done for us, this is his creation. You are his creation. That's his creation. And his heart is to redeem this creation. That's his heart. Not just you. Plants, animals, all of creation to redeem it. That's a pretty high calling, isn't it, to live up to that? Hear me again. If I go to be with Jesus today, and you only have five months with me, I just passed five months, if you only remember one thing, remember, the unity that was created by Christ, the price was higher than any of us could pay. If we do only one thing well, this is the thing to do well. Right here. And that's why it's Paul's first command in this book. To be diligent, to protect, to guard, to watch out for, to preserve, to take care of this unity. Unity is an interesting thing because at one end of this continuum, Christ died on the cross, Ephesians 2, and he brought unity. So at one level, we have unity, even if we don't like each other. Okay? But then as you move down this continuum into the area of relationships, it doesn't work that way. Unity is now something that we have to protect. So you could say that we have unity in the very core of our being because of who Christ is. Therefore, we should work very hard to protect it in our relationships because it's still a broken world and this is still the one area where we can blow it. And most churches do from time to time. So unity is the theme of what we're talking about today. So this calling really is reflecting this incredible responsibility that we have because of all that God has done. Then in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. The importance of love here, again, can't be overstated. He's going to conclude with love at the end of verse 15 and 16, in both of those verses. Love becomes really essential in this whole piece of unity. Love is like the glue that holds it all together. Love is the the reason we do it. Love is the motivation that we move toward others. 
It was because of God's great love for us, Paul argues in Ephesians 2, that he sent his son. It was because of his great love for us that he died, that Christ died. Love is the expression of this unity. Love is the way we say to one another, you are more important than I am. That's how we do it. Love is critical. He's getting ready to talk about all these spiritual gifts that he sent. And if we're not careful, spiritual gifts become competitive because spiritual gifts and passions are where you begin to excel in the body of Christ. That's where you begin to stand out. Some of you have gifts of mercy. Some of you have gifts of giving. Some of you have gifts of serving and helps and administration and all of those wonderful things. And so God has created this body such that we depend on one another. And all of us has something to contribute. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has something to contribute to making this body healthy, this one fellowship healthy. And so if we're not careful, the exercise of these gifts will generate competition. Can you imagine how, competitive, how hard it would be if Mark and I began to compete with one another? And we're both competitive guys. Don't get me wrong. We're not, you know, we're not milquetoast. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We love it. We go for it with gusto. But it would be hard if we competed with one another, wouldn't it? That's not, there's no place for that in the church. And so that's why this expression of humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the beginning of the movement toward unity. Humility. Guess what? You're not the most important person. You're part of something bigger than yourselves. That's what humility is. Why do you exist? I exist to love you. I exist to serve you. My wife, my family, my church. I exist to pour myself out. Paul's wonderful words at the end of his life, I have poured out, I am being poured out as an offering to the Lord. What a great metaphor. What a great picture, isn't it, of what our life should be? I am being poured out. The time of my departure has come. Regularly, once a year, I sit down and evaluate my life. And one of the questions I ask is, when the time comes for the Lord to pour me out, what do I want people to say about me? And um, I hope that they say that, that uh, the time was right, the departure, the time when I, was de when I departed was the right time, and I poured myself out on behalf of people. I'm not the most important person. You are. I'm part of something bigger than myself. Humility, gentleness, patience. By the way, um, I'm going to read you a very famous verse out of Matthew. You'll recognize it immediately. This is how Christ described his own ministry. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ defined his own ministry in terms of gentleness and humility. That's out of Matthew 11, by the way. This means being willing to reach across the aisle. I use that metaphorically. To reach across to people that you differ with, that you have disagreement with. That's what it means. It means not being competitive, not trying to get your own way, 
It really means putting others first. As Paul says in Philippians 2, make one another as more important than yourselves. Then in verse 3, he gives, gives that gold nugget, work very, very hard to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peace is the means by which unity is maintained. Now, when most people read this book of Ephesians, they read it, most of you just naturally read it individually. That's not a criticism. That's just the way your cultural upbringing taught you. But when you read it in the context of the church, what you'll find is peace is something that is designed for relationship, not internal. The scriptural use of the word peace, while it may start here, it finds its expression out here in relationships. So listen as I read to you first, or Ephesians 2. We read this a couple weeks back. For he himself is our peace. There it is, okay? Ephesians 2.14. Who has made the two one, those are the Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Thus making peace. There's the second one. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were near and peace to you who were far away. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Peace. Peace. And how did he do it? He did it by removing this hostility. He did it by removing hostility. The opposite of peace is hostility. It's not tension. Don't think of it as an internal quality. Think of it as a relational quality. The opposite of peace is hostility. That's what Christ came to destroy, to take out of the way, to remove it. It means putting others first. It is, a, it is perhaps the central aspect of Christ's ministry to create peace here. If we have peace, then we can have unity. According to Galatians 5.22, peace is a gift of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Patience, right? It's a gift of the Spirit. This peace, if we can protect it, creates unity. Because peace means that I'm going to get rid of hostility and I'm going to put you first. We will live at peace as a church. And therefore, unity will result. That's what he's arguing. Okay? Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This unity is what links our everyday life with this fantastic work that Christ accomplished. Otherwise, it's all academic. It really doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of facts. Christ did all this work, we read in Ephesians 1, to bring about peace. That's what we were created for, shalom. That's the Hebrew term. You've heard that before, shalom. It starts with an inner rest, but it doesn't find its express, uh, fulfillment until it's expressed in relationship. Shalom. 
Are you at rest with one another? Or are you in hostility with one another? Our church has been through a lot in the last couple of years, hasn't it? I was privileged by God's grace to join your journey five months ago. So therefore, it's become part of my journey. Are you in hostility or are you at rest? Or are you at peace? Do we as a church demonstrate unity? I think we can always do better. I'm going to read to you a couple of quotes. One is from John Chrysostom. He's uh, one of the, what we call the early church father. He's the Archbishop of Constantinople from the 4th century. Listen to what he says about unity. What is this unity of spirit? In the human body, there is a spirit which holds all together, though in different members. So it is also here. For to this end was a spirit given that he might unite those who are separated by race and by different manners. For old and young, rich and poor, child and youth, woman and man, and every soul become in a manner one and more entirely so than if there were one body. For this spiritual relationship is far higher than the other natural one, and the perfectness of the union more entire. It's complete. Because the conjunction of the soul, coming together of the soul, is more perfect inasmuch as it is both simple and uniform. How then is this unity preserved? In the bond of peace. It is not possible for this to exist in enmity and discord. It's one of our early church fathers. It is not possible for this to exist in enmity and discord. Keep that in mind. This is from John Bunyan, a Christian preacher from the 17th century. <clears throat> this unity and peace may consist in the ignorance of many truths and the, in the holding of some errors. Okay, listen again to those words. This unity and peace may consist in the ignorance of many truths and in the holding of some errors. Otherwise, this duty of peace and unity could not be practical by any on this side of perfection. But we must now endeavor the unity of the Spirit, because now, as the Apostle saith, we know in part and we prophesy in part, and now we see through a glass darkly. Close 1 Corinthians. I really believe that's why God tried to protect us from the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Because I'm not quite created for that. Because to truly exercise that knowledge means I need to be omniscient. I don't know either your motives or your circumstances for the reasons that you do things. So my personal opinion, when I form a conclusion about somebody, is I hold it very loosely and I'm willing to be proved wrong. Because I often am. I have no idea what your motives are. And that's why Christ said in Matthew 7, a very strong imperative, do not judge. Do not judge. Paul says, be very careful, Galatians 6, when you confront a fellow believer, because you're going to fall into the same trap, arrogance. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it liberally. All the authors say on the basis of two or three witnesses, confirm the facts. I don't know your motives. I don't know the circumstances. I see through a glass very darkly, and I'm not God. For the Lord's sake, Bunyan goes on, for the Lord's sake, let us unite to practice those things we know, not the things we don't know. This unity and peace mainly consists in unity of love 
and affection. This is the great and indispensable duty of all Christians. By this, they are declared Christ's disciples. Remember the command? By the love that you have for one another. And hence it is that love is called the great commandment, the old commandment, and the new commandment. Unity and peace is a duty well-pleasing to God, who is styled the author of peace and not of confusion in all the churches. God's Spirit rejoiceth in the unity of our spirits, but on the other hand, where strife and division are, there the Spirit of God is grieved. And by the way, that's the topic of next Sunday. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who brought about this unity. The price that has been paid for this unity is beyond compare. It's beyond our ability to even comprehend. And we are challenged to live a life worthy of that calling. Step up to the plate. Forgive. We're going to talk about forgiveness later on. Forgiveness isn't, you don't forgive because someone who has done something right. You forgive because, Paul says later in Ephesians, because Christ in heaven has already forgiven you. And you are, no, you are uh, no more worthy of forgiveness than the person you're asked to forgive. So we forgive because that's what Christ did for us. I cannot stress enough how important unity is. Unity is not about agreement. Now hear me on that. Unity is not about agreement. It's about priority. It's about priority. Okay, we're going to fly through this next section here just to put everything in context. Verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it is said, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. Quoting Psalm 68, In the ancient world, when, a, when an emperor or a king went out and fought a battle and he won, he came back and he paraded all the prisoners and the, the proceeds that he took, the loot, he, pr- he paraded it in front of all of his people. And I think this is a statement about Christ. Christ paraded the enemies. He took captive all these people, and he's showing the universe that he is the true victor. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ came, God, the one true living God, came to the earth, and he accomplished the victory on the cross, and he ascended into heaven, And he took all these captives. It's a way of communicating to these people in Asia Minor that our God is the true victor. He won. Then he goes on. So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I love this. This is my job description. To equip his people for works of service. He doesn't say to do works of service, although that is important for me as an individual Christian, but as a leader in this church, to equip you to do works of ministry and service. This idea of equipping is to make you, help you become what you were created to be all along. It's used in the ancient world of mending broken bones. It's used as a verb in Matthew of mending a a broken net. As you become more mature, you become better at what you was created to do. And our job as pastors and elders is to help you with that. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning of craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, and by the way, we're going to see that phrase again in just a, in next Sunday. That's an allusion or a quote of Zechariah 8. When the Messiah comes, we will speak truth to one another. That's part of the new covenant. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, and by the way, there's one body. It's technically not correct to say the body at Dillon. We have a fellowship here. There's one body of Christ. It's worldwide. It's all believers. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Christ has so orchestrated this body so that it builds itself together. That's what we're created for. It's amazing. Okay, now, when I just read that, that idea, uh, did you notice the movement from the plural to the singular? We were infants, and now we're one, one body. The movement from immaturity to maturity the movement away from deceitfulness and scheming to truth and action characterized by love, speaking the truth to one another. You see the movement? That's what unity does for us. Failure to achieve or maintain this unity has the opposite effect. That means we are a church with hostility. So where are we? Are we a healthy church? Now, this is a question for you to ponder individually. Are we a healthy church? Do you maintain hostility towards someone? Disunity? Division? Please, please, I beg you, set it aside. Set it aside. That's what unity all, is all about. We achieve peace by putting each other as more important than ourselves. Unity is the result and then God glorifies himself through us, the church. And Summit County wins because we do that. The elders are going to come take our offering. Uh, the ushers, I mean, and the musicians are going to come up. Don't worry about all the people. There's a whole slew of them, aren't there? Wasn't it fun having them all up there leading us in worship today? So let's just stop and thank the Lord for these gifts. It's his work, his spirit at work in our body to make this happen, our fellowship. Father, I know that you have, your spirit is already at work in the hearts of these people. And uh, Lord, you decide what they're going to give us and we use it wisely for your glory. So Lord, uh, we give you thanks for these offerings and these gifts that uh, these people are about to give. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great sacrifice for us. In your name we pray, amen.